This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. This week, Simon Phipps and I talk with Louis Villa, who is with Tidelift, a really interesting company, which if you're a maintainer of code, you want to know about because you can get paid if you're not getting paid now. That's one topic, and that's a big one, and one that gets us just started off. We go off into AI, ML, what government's doing with all this, what's happening in government right now. And not just here in the U.S., where I happen to be at the moment, but in Europe. Even China gets brought in at the end, I think. So there's all kinds of stuff that we're going to be talking about for the next hour. And that is coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly, episode 756. Recorded Wednesday, November 1st. 2023. We won. Now what? This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Collide. That's Collide with a K. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and they ensure that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. Visit collide.com slash floss to book an on-demand demo today. Hi, everybody. I'm Doc Searles. This is Floss Weekly. And this week, I am joined by Simon Phipps himself from hey. sunny Southampton. It's there, beautiful at light, the moment. There's a light, light upon you. I could, I could yeah, see yeah, it. That's, uh, we're expecting a storm today, though. We've got a, we have a big storm. Mm. Uh, it's, it's kind of even <laughs> fairly big by Florida standards that is due through tomorrow. So uh, we're battening everything down. But at the moment, we've got the blue sky and we've got the sunshine and then everything blows away tomorrow. That's great. Well, we've we've had very balmy weather here for a while. I'm in Indiana, in Bloomington, Indiana, where uh, nothing is blooming right now. We had a frost so hard this morning that my blue car was covered in white. <laughs> so so that's, that's what's happening here. So we have as a, a guest... Uh, uh, Louis Villa, and he is a return guest. Um, and you, we, we both know him, it turns out, in different ways, including the fact that he's been on the show before. So how, how, how do you know? Louis, uh, well, uh, well and- I think I first ran into him at Gnome, but he was on the OSI board oh. for, for, for a long time. Uh, he's oh. also the guy that wrote the Mozilla Public License version 2. Uh, he was also involved in the GPLv3 process, and I bumped into him there. Uh, he's also now a lawyer and I, you know, I collect lawyers like people collect badges. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we, we have many, many points of contact the whole time. So I, I've known Lewis for a very long time, along with her, his former Zimian uh, uh, pals uh, who are all doing great things for free software in different places. Zimian, another word we haven't heard in a while. So I'm going to run down the bio here as quickly as I can. Uh, uh, Lewis is the co-founder and general counsel at Tidelift, which will be a topic here. Uh, he was a top open source lawyer advising clients from Fortune 500 companies, leading startups on lots of matters, uh, an experienced open source community leader with the Wikimedia, organizations like Wikimedia, led the Wikimedia Foundation's community engagement team. Before that, he was with Mozilla, um, where he, led the revision of the Mozilla public license and served on the boards of creative commons, the open source initiative and more a long ago programmer, computer science degree from Duke. And so 
Louis, I have to ask you, when, when were you at Duke? Because I, I hung out there, too. I didn't go oh, there as a student. I was but, Duke 1996 to 2001. Okay, it was long after my time. I, I was, I was, I was uh, a political science and computer science double major at a time when I didn't think those two things were related. <laughs> right. It was like, oh, yeah, politics is, is sort of interesting. Computers are sort of interesting. Wait, they're the same thing. You know, brain explode. Did, did you know Jamie Boyle there? The, um, I, the... I did not meet Jamie Boyle until the year after I graduated. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who was a, a Red Hat employee for a long time, but at that time was at the Duke Physics Department, saw a flyer for conference on the public domain at the Duke law school. And he's like, Hey, you've been looking for an excuse to come back to campus and say, hi, like come crash on my couch. And it was sort of, I don't know, life-changing, I guess. Right. Like it was one of these, uh, cause I met Jamie Boyle who is on the law school faculty and has been a sort of theorist of open for a long time. Uh, That was the king of the public domain, basically. Yeah. yeah. He kind of owned that topic. Yeah, and that was the yeah. meeting where Creative Commons was announced, right? Like Creative oh, Commons really? had been sort. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. That, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 we were, we were we were both at the Berkman Center in different capacities at at a time when his name was kind of thrown around a lot. Um, so so I want to I want to start just because I promised um, this uh, gentleman I would mention it, and also for our listeners. And it's relevant to you, and we don't have to dig far into this, but it is an interesting topic, that the list of, the well-annotated list of episodes for this podcast, which is now having, it's like a 750-something episode going back more than 10 years, um, as an early podcast, uh, may not be notable. And so it's got, it has a, it is, it has been nominated for deletion, and so You'd like in us Wikipedia. to recruit interest in that in Wikimedia, in Wikipedia, in Wikipedia. So, so, but you were telling me, telling us earlier before we started that citations wasn't even, I, I had always thought that citations was like the original thing with having written and edited many, many Wikipedia pages and worked hard to make sure citations are everywhere. I did not know that that was not like for there from the start. Yeah, no, citations... Uh, was sort of baked in in year three or four, maybe, I think, of, and they work differently on every, this is one of the things that I love to tell open source people about Wikipedia, because Wikipedia is like, it's very open sourcey in a lot of ways, but it's also open source people who bring their experience and preconceptions to Wikipedia are sometimes sort of surprised, right? So we sometimes sort of colloquially we're like the linux community but of course if you talk to a linux maintainer it's actually like the networking drivers community and the <laughs> part, you know and the, and the storage layer community and they like sort of interact a little but and wikipedia is the same way english wikipedia german wikipedia within mm. each of these wikipedias there are sub communities uh and it um you know and so there's no, there's actually still no one way to do citations in English Wikipedia. There's like six last time I counted. Uh, and it's slightly different in German and in Spanish. And that drives external people. Like if you, they're like, what's the API for citations? Like I have bad news for you. It's an IRC channel. 
and oh, well, you yeah. put a bot in the IRC channel, <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 you can't be serious. I'm like, deadly serious. That's actually been fixed now, but that was the case when I was at Wikipedia about 10 years ago. Um, yeah, well, Dewey Citations is a bear. And, I've, um, and I don't do them so often that I remember how to do them every single time. And it's always, I almost always copy it from somewhere else, or I look where somebody else has done it, it looks okay. And just paste it and then cop strip out the other stuff and put it in my stuff. But is the you know one of the, the cool things in the right place and is the space go here or not? And stuff yeah, like there's that. a there's a there's a GUI editor now in Wikipedia and has been for well, seven or eight years now, but it's not on by default for for people who've had accounts for a long time, like you and me. Uh and like mostly it's like you're like, oh look, it's Wikitext, it's fine. What do I need a visual editor for? The reason you need a GUI editor is because its citation mode is awesome. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah, so I, it's got a I, you can it'll I want actually, to go down like to the command line version of it, right? So that's but that's the basically HTML. That's for, and that's it, yeah, and that's the and that's the default. And it's fine for like if you're just, you know, um doing a little copy editing or whatever, great. But the in one of these awesome examples of the power of open source, have you ever heard of Zotero? Yes. Yeah. So Zotero is like, a, for those not familiar with it, is an academic tool that helps uh, researchers collect and store their citations. So Wikipedia now runs a copy of Zotero in server mode. And in the visual editor, you can give it a URL and it will attempt to pull out author, publication, date, all the stuff that you want in a citation and put it into a properly formatted citation wow. through the magic of collaboration between Zotero and uh, a, a programming team. Wikitext is a like deeply, um, how you say, horrific um, <laughs> in terms of a programming doc before the show started, Don't you and I were talking difficult. about standards. Yeah, There's no yeah. standard for Wikitext. The standard was the PHP implementation. So this like heroic team reverse engineered Wikitext from the PHP implementation into a specification, re-implemented in JavaScript so they could do the visual editor. Um, it's a, it's one of those things that like, you're like, how hard could a visual, how hard could a WYSIWYG editor be? And the answer is like many years of some of the smartest programmers, you know, but you would never know that behind the scenes. Right. Um, well, well, listeners, uh, if, uh, if you take an interest in this, uh, you know, take a look at what, what this little controversy is, we'll put it yeah. in the show notes, you know, yeah, and, and let me actually say, this might be a good transition to yeah, for, for those who are wondering what I do at Tidelift and yeah, I was going to make, make that. Tra- I was going to jump over to that. So go for it. Tell us about yeah, that. Well, so one of the ways in which open source and Wikipedia are very parallel, these are long lived things now, right? Like this article is like a decade, decade and a half old, something like that. Uh, the my biography article, which maybe should be deleted, or if listeners want to update it with some of the stuff you learned in the beginning of this uh, episode, you're also welcome to go do that. Um, but it is, you know, my articles, you know, 15 years old, 20 years old, maybe. And, uh, and we have to think about how does that get maintained over time? Right? Because people's interest waxes and wanes. Uh, you know, people's, I mean, it sounds like this article is very well maintained, which is awesome, but not all articles are. For example, the person who started my Wikipedia article now has three kids. 
and doesn't edit Wikipedia anymore. Um, and so it's less maintained and I don't want to maintain it myself. That would be a conflict of interest. So what Tidelift is, is a way of thinking about this maintenance problem over the long term for open source. So we observed that many, our average customer has about 4,000 packages at Tidelift. Uh, and uh, so they have, when Doc, when you and I started, Simon, when we all started, uh, you, you could count all your packages on one hand, right? So you could establish a relationship with these communities by dropping them an email. Now, if you've got 4,000 packages as part of your production, uh, your production setup, you can't build human relationships with them. So how do you know that they're going to still be there tomorrow, day after tomorrow, you know, 10 years from now? The answer is you got to think creatively. And that's where we at Tidelift come in. We build relationships between our enterprise customers and the folks. For those of you who've seen the XKCD comic, I think in this audience, that's probably safe. The person in Nebraska who's <laughs> maintaining the one little stick, right? Um, we build relationships with them to encourage them and pay them out of our customers' money to keep doing what they do because they are deeply underappreciated. That person in Nebraska is, uh, is, is a small cog in a big machine, and the way open source works these days, they often get a lot of requests and not a lot of love. And so we bring in paying them to help make those pieces more durable and more the, the, yeah, this, for those not familiar, this is the, uh, there's also a variant on this that I put together, which is all modern slide decks about digital infrastructure <laughs> are, uh, maintained by a comic that, uh, Randall has been maintaining thanklessly since whenever it came out, <laughs> like five, six years ago. Right. Because it turns out we actually had to tell speakers at our last conference. We're like, you can't use the slot. You can't use the XKCD because otherwise all of you will use the XKCD and you know, that would be a little awkward. <laughs> so, so Lewis, tell me some more about Tidelift. Uh, Cause it, you know, it fascinates me. You're building relationships with communities. I know there are countless millions of communities at, or you, you mentioned earlier about how it was layers and layers and layers. You know, there is yeah. there's communities of communities the communities don't have any uh, ontology, so the relationships between them are all entirely random. And then uh, over here, you're taking some money from one of Tidelift's customers, and you're somehow going to send it to the right people over here. How does that all work? Right. I, it, it blows my mind to think that you might even attempt it. I, well, I mean, some days it blows my mind that we attempt it too, but, uh, so you're not alone there. Um, the... So a couple things. The basic model you can almost think of as Spotify, right? We measure what our customers are using in order to identify what packages we need to reach out to first. And to some extent, of course, they're all using some things like Kubernetes, for example, right? We don't, uh, the amount of support we can offer to something like Kubernetes that is already supported by a bunch of the biggest companies in the world very directly and by a flourishing commercial ecosystem is relatively very small. So that's not what our customers need and not what we focus on. Instead, it turns out as soon as you get start going down that long tail, you get to 
packages with one or two maintainers very, very quickly. So some of the biggest packages in the world, like libcurl or a bunch of the JavaScript ecosystem, basically relies on one person. And so we identify those packages where you as a customer get a lot of maintenance bang for the buck by saying, hey, you're using, you and all of our other customers are using this JavaScript framework. We're going to go find that person and give them, I mean, we have several of our top maintainers making six figures from us now, right? Lots are making smaller amounts. I don't want to like say that every listener who has any kind of package should run and sign up. You can check. Uh, Our webpage does uh, allow you to check if you're a maintainer of a package. But that's really where the sweet spot is, is those large packages, widely used, but with a small, usually one or two maintainers. And we really, we think we can make a big difference there in the long-term sustainability and viability of those projects. Right. right. And and so what is that onboarding process? You know, uh, so uh, I, I don't have anything I'm responsible for maintaining anymore, but, you know, let's pretend I, I am maintaining some package. Uh, what should I go check? Uh, you know, will you give me money? Yeah, uh, yeah. How, so, how would I find out? How do I get it? You know. Oh, I wish I had this. I should have this URL, like, tattooed on my forehead for every time I go to a conference. <laughs> I just came back from a conference and I don't. It's it's washed off, um, but you can go to our website and there's a link that says something like for maintainers. You can click there. You can search your package and we'll show like, you know, hey, substantial number of our customers are using you. We expect that you could make up to this much money if you if you joined up. And when you do that, well, one, we contact you. Obviously, it's a pretty hands on kind of process. Uh, but then we also what we do is we start walking you through essentially what are the kinds of things that an enterprise wants to think about that aren't fun for you? You can sort of think of us as like trying to incentivize the things that big businesses care about, like licensing. It's a little weird that lawyer is a uh, co-founder and that's because licensing is something that actually businesses care a lot about and maintainers mostly like they just want to copy a license.txt file and never think about it again. So we help bridge the gap, right? So like if a scanner, if our scanner says, actually, it looks like you've got two or three licenses in here. Is that a surprise to you? And you say, that's totally surprising. I thought I had only one license. We help you bridge that gap, right? We help you get to that point. Uh, You know, what our customers are paying for is helping to, to get there, right? Similarly, a thing we're doing a lot of these days, some of you in the audience may have heard of the Open SSF scorecard. That's the Open source security foundation open software security foundation i always forget what the first s is Uh, but that's a linux foundation project and they publish a large scorecard which is essentially like 10 metrics that they believe that if your project hits these 10 metrics uh your project's going to be more secure in the long run we find that the average package only scores like a three and a half four somewhere around there on those 10 metrics So we help you as part of the onboarding process identify what are the gaps between scoring a four and a 10 might not be possible for technical reasons or depending on which framework you're, you know, might not be possible to get to 10, but we can help you get from four to eight pretty quickly. And that benefits our customers and also helps benefit your project in the long run. But like, honestly, it's all sort of boring stuff. It's probably not what you would want to do on your weekend, Simon, right? Like you've got, 
other things to do on your weekends. And, you know, you wouldn't want to be doing a scorecard on your weekend unless somebody like us paid you for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and we can show, we've got some reports on our website that show that change over time, right? Like where does the scorecard, once people start getting paid, you can see the graph going up, up into the right, uh, which, you know, um, correlation and causation are a little complex here, but, but we think that that really helps over time, make your code base more maintainable, right? There's no magic bullet. We can't prevent a log for J right? But we can make sure that a greater number of maintainers are around for the long run uh, so that when those kinds of things come up, they uh, are more, um, you know, we can respond to them more quickly. Hopefully they're more minor in severity because the maintainers are around and active, which includes, to be clear, the Log4j maintainers who we do support. Right. Uh, and uh, you mentioned just then a, a very large sum of money that someone is earning. So how are you doing? I mean, how many how many clients have you got? What's your, you know, may I ask, what is your turnover at the moment? I, uh, you, you may not ask. Uh, I don't think we make that public. Uh, or you can ask, you can ask whatever you want. Um, but we are, we're growing, you know, I think it might be helpful or interesting to your customers, might, might help and make sense. A lot of our customers are banks, insurance, increasingly governments, which maybe is a good transition for another topic of our conversation. Uh, increasingly, governments are thinking about governments are more concerned than the average organization with the long term. So when you tell them like, hey, you've built your castles on sand, uh, they actually respond to that. They're like, oh, especially in this very current moment, right? Like, um uh, I mean, Simon, I mean, both of you, both, both of you we've, we've all been doing this a long time. The idea that the White House would be having meetings about open source would have seemed extremely yeah. far-fetched to younger us, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and, it, it, it could only happen after the legalization of cannabis, really, that sort of, that sort of <laughs> supposition. I can't imagine it happening any other way. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, some people had to get very creative, which may have involved things even stronger than cannabis, but it happened, <laughs> right? We had White House meetings about this stuff, and um, and that, like, is, I mean, this is a two-edged sword, right? And I think maybe this is an interesting, it's a very active week in this space for this, actually, Um there's, as, as Simon well knows, and maybe Simon, you want to lay some groundwork here, but governments are starting to think about open source, which is cool. Uh, they're bringing a lot of resources to bear. It's a sign that I, 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 I considered at one point launching a podcast called We Won, Now What? Because in many ways, open source has won, right? We're the, like the defaults in the industry where sort of you have to argue against open source in a lot of ways. Um, but yet also it's like, okay, now we're the backbone of the entire world economy. That means governments are going to pay attention to us. That means we're going to be regulated. And that is a that is a sea change that I think we haven't fully you know, we as a, as a broad community have not really fully internalized yet. Right. Right. Well, I want us to get to, there's so many, there's a long list of things that we have to talk about and uh, uh, AI and ML and that stuff, which is now required, I think as a topic for every podcast, <laughs> but 
First, we have to take a break, and I let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and they ensure that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Sometimes an employee's device gets hacked because of unpatched software. Sometimes an employee leaves sensitive data in an unsecured place. And it seems like every day a hacker breaks in using credentials they fished from an employee. The problem here isn't your end users. It's the solutions that are supposed to prevent these breaches. But it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, including Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for your IT team. The good news is you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Visit collide.com slash floss to book an on-demand demo today and see how it works for yourself. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash floss. So Lewis, AI, ML, all of it, um, whatever we thought about it this morning is already a little bit obsolete. So <laughs> it's like our, our heads spinning fast enough. Um, it's uh, it's beyond interesting and absorbing. I've spent much of the last week playing with various visual things, which are interesting. I, I'll, I'll put one to you. I I wanted to show a radio tower collapsing in the forest because I'm writing a piece about how radio, as we knew it, is kind of going away. To get them to do an AM radio tower, which has generally has nothing hanging off the side, is impossible. <laughs> Dolly, uh, Stable Diffusion, they all want to show a radio tower encrusted with dishes and gizmos. And it, and it's, but of course, that it's going by what I guess the large image model shows. That's there are too many things that look a different way, right? And even, and even telling it, like, I, 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 did, I did another one about printing presses because um, we have an idea for a kind of WordPress like thing called date press, which is for calendars. And, and I wanted to show a kind of printing press, but not an ancient one printing calendar. The only thing you can imagine are ancient printing presses and people in, in, you know, turn of the last century gear operating them. It's kind of weird and interesting. So what do you got on that? Boy, I mean, cause it's open, right? I mean, we're in Openville, but, there's a lot of stuff that gets through the door that you may not want in the door. Well, or but that maybe you need in the door, right? I mean, right. it turns out that to uh, to train these things to avoid racism and sexism, you have to show them racism and sexism so that they know what they are. Um, and you know, because the the I mean, the problem is these things know what we put into them. And what we put into them is mostly what's on the internet. 
And so if the internet only has FM towers, then good luck getting an AM tower yeah, out it, of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a, I remember one of the earliest onion headlines, like back in 1995 said the headline was error found on internet. And <laughs> 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 it's kind of like, uh, there's almost nothing but that. <laughs> it's, right. Well, and, and what is the, I mean, you know, that's such a great example of bias, right? Because we like to talk about biases in AI. It's a really important, in my opinion, uh, a much more interesting and important issue than is this stuff going to turn into the Terminator? Is, mm. you know, is this stuff going to be biased in a whole bunch of ways? And it turns out one of the more innocuous ways it can be biased is things like age, or geography, right? Well, again, just simply because at this point there probably are many more FM towers, uh, certainly pictures of cell phone crusted towers uh, than AM radio towers on the internet, just because of age and time. That's what the AI is going to know about, right? In le- until we make deliberate steps to debias it by, for example, showing it a bunch of AM radio towers. Uh, it's just going to know what it knows. And, and those biases are very real, very present already. And, you know, that's a really interesting conversation for everybody to have. All of society needs to be thinking about that question, but it's also a really interesting example for open and how open has to, or can deal with this kind of stuff. Right. Because we're not used to we're sort of used to like we write a piece of software, we hand it out to the world like you break it, you buy it. Right. Like if, if it doesn't work for you, run a test suite, fix it yourself. These opaque blobs of model, they're open in the sense that anybody can poke at the numbers. And in fact, in some ways, it's easier to modify than traditional source code. but. Uh, if you don't know about AM versus FM radio towers, you would never think to look for that kind of bias. You would never know about that kind of bias. You might look for other, maybe more high profile forms of bias, but, um, you're never going to catch all of them. And so how do you, so even if it's open, whose responsibility is that? We don't know, right? Government is saying, I mean, this week, literally very actively, both in Washington, D.C. and in Brussels, where the EU is headquartered, both of them are actively working on regulating AI to uh, to fix that. And, yeah, and, and how that's going to work for open. They're worried about Terminator. You know, that's the big one. But the, um, I mean, an interesting one, since you mentioned cells, here in the U.S., there are lots of cell towers. But in Europe, they're mostly cell sites. You don't see many towers. It depends on the country. But in many, they hide them perfectly. They're in church steeples. They're buried in the side of buildings, made to look like bricks. So, um, yeah, it's a, it, it's interesting because we, uh, as uh, Greg Crow Hartman pointed out when we brought this topic up with him a few weeks ago, he said, it's all pattern matching. And it's just nothing but pattern matching. We're matching patterns. And Patterns are in the world and we are human beings and our, we make machines that do the same thing. We look for patterns. There they are. I, I, I know that's a light bulb. I know that's a clock that looks like a wall. We're going to give you more of that. Right. And so the machines are going to do similar things. 
Yeah. And, and to be clear, I mean, I, I do want to pause for a second and say, that's miraculous, man. We taught <laughs> our computers to recognize clocks and to know the difference between a watch and a grandfather clock. And like, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think sometimes, I mean, I sat in my coffee shop. I live in San Francisco. I sat in my coffee shop this morning and watched a car with no human being in it negotiate a turn with somebody crossing a crosswalk and like again that's like science fiction it's wild and we should i think i think it's very easy in this moment in time to be like well okay but what happens if the car accidentally nudges the pedestrian and it's really important to think about that right we should not lose sight of these things are going to have such huge impact in the world uh i've written on my ml blog actually doc you were talking about printing presses um Mm. i think the like the lower bound of the impact here is sort of on the level of cell phone and the web and the upper bound is like societal change at the level of the printing press and we are all creatures i mean you've got a bookshelf behind you i've got a giant bookshelf behind me simon's off camera right now but i assume Mm. simon you do read are you, you know, no, no books for Simon. Yeah. Off camera. Sure. My books yeah, are over there. Yeah, that's what they all say. Yeah. The books are, mm, don't trust Simon. If you don't have a book in the background, don't trust him. I have so much but like, but We're all creatures of the book and none of us would go back. The printing press did also lead to a hundred years of bloody warfare in Europe. Right. Uh, oh, and there's yeah. so much that we take for granted about the printing press that is really hard for us to unwind that. And and I think it's going to be the same with ML. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, there's the other end of that process. So we've been all been talking about uh, deployment and effects of AI uh, at the other end. And the same thing happened with the printing press was the question about the, the, the origin end of, of the, of the knowledge. So, uh, I, you know, one of the really big questions is uh, should uh, AIs be allowed to be trained on open source software without the express permission of the authors. Um, and, and I don't know what the answer to that is, uh, quite honestly. I, I wonder what's Tidelift's position there. Would you, would you act as a conduit for people to get permission from maintainers to, to tr- use their code to train AI? Is that something you're doing? You know, that is something we're looking at. Um, because there is some research that suggests that focusing on higher quality code can lead to higher quality outcomes, right? So for example, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the lingo, there's a process called fine tuning, which is essentially like you take the general purpose model and then you tweak it based on a smaller set of data. And that's often used for things like, I would like my image model to be more anime like, so I'll feed it a little bit of anime and we'll, we'll, we'll make it, produce anime more easily. One thing you can do in coding is uh, you can feed it higher quality code and you can tune it to produce higher quality code. So we're monitoring that because we think there might be a, we think there might be some market there for, you know, are the folks who contract with us because they are small maintainers doing really high end code Right, the, some of the most widely downloaded projects uh, on the planet, their code quality. We th- we have 
some reason to believe uh, is higher quality than average, right? So there may be a market there, but at the same time, that's a, there's a tension, right? Among other things, many tensions here, we could talk all day about this, but uh, a couple really relevant ones there. Open has succeeded in part by reducing friction and, and increasing people's ease of use. So anytime you put licensing fees in there, you have to be really careful that you're not sort of killing the golden goose by demanding another layer of stuff. Uh, and, you know, I mean, more generally, uh, as Simon, as I, I think you know, I spent a lot of years working on the Oracle uh, versus Google case for Google. And a key question there was fair use of APIs. And, uh, you know, again, fair use has really benefited the software industry as a whole and open source in specific. And so anything that uh, anytime you run around saying that's not fair use, you have to really think about what the side effects are, right? And that is, um, I've done a couple podcasts on that. I have a, a newsletter, uh, it's a side project, it's called openml.fyi, that is a lot about the intersection of open and machine learning, might be of interest to some of you. And, um, uh, you know, and I've talked about that fair use question quite a bit, because I don't know, you know, by the way, yeah. this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, Simon, as I was saying, and I know you know this, right? We could talk about that all day. Absolutely. Traditional, <laughs> traditionally, I mean, I think the key thing for any listener to take away, traditionally, governments actually react to technological changes. Like the history of the U.S. Copyright Act is in part driven by, oh, we invented player pianos, which was the first recorded form of music, commercially viable form of music. And we got an entirely new Copyright Act out of player pianos because musicians were like, this is going to put us out of business. This is stealing our stuff, right? Which is very similar to the moment we're in right now in a lot of like emotional yeah. ways for musicians. And, and I, mean, I think um, that's the, the, you know, that's the distinction when it comes to fair use because uh, the, uh, Google's use of the Java API was totally fair use because it made everyone's lives better. Uh, an, an AI sucking the uh, juices out of open source software and making the people who work on it uh, redundant doesn't sound like it makes everyone's lives better in quite the same way. Boy, I it's could much, literally it's, it's much, like much more a player piano kind of situation than it is a Google a Google Android API issue. I would. Assume. I could literally copy and paste the sucking the blood out of like Oracle <laughs> used exactly those words to yeah. talk about how uh, Android they were wrong. Was killing That's the, the Java ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Every generation of fair use argument boils down to, but the prior generations of fair use arguments, those people were right, but I am different. And like, that's a very slippery, you know, I mean, the Free Software Foundation used to talk very openly about how one of their goals was a world in which there was no copyright in software whatsoever. And weird, now that they're on the receiving end of that, now suddenly it's complicated, right? And I get why. I don't want to dismiss, I mean, those emotional reactions to the things that we create are very real. And I think, you know, I think the unfortunate thing, uh, Simon, is that, as you know, um, ideally you'd have a sort of democratic process to, like, balance these 
to to balance these things. And unfortunately, at least in the U.S., it seems likely it will be the courts that decide this. And that is, a, I think, not the optimal way to be making really society wide. Like, I don't want a, a judge picked someone at random to be the one. I mean, you might be right, right? Like, maybe this is not fair use because it's societally bad. But I don't want a single judge deciding that. Like, one way or yeah. the other. I would really much rather Congress figure that out. But that assumes a level of functionality that for our yeah. for people who who don't follow U.S. politics, Congress not very functional right now. Yeah, it so, assumes that a Congress other than the current Congress is going to do that because they <laughs> might actually take the topic seriously. Rather, than, I'm not allowed to talk about this politics. Sorry, Doc, take it yeah, away. Yeah, I, I, I want to tease with that because uh, I, I was thinking it's a legislative body that doesn't actually legislate, but. We want to get to this, uh, but first we need a brief break. All you want is to meet your security and compliance requirements, but your business technology keeps changing. Cyber threats emerge every day. More regulations apply to you now than ever before, and your IT resources remain limited. The Center for Internet Security can help. At CIS, we work to create a safer world for people, businesses, and governments through collaboration and innovation. Using a community-driven consensus process, we work with IT professionals and volunteers around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources save you time, money, and effort wherever you are on your cybersecurity journey. We also work with U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations to share information with one another so they're stronger together. Join us today in creating confidence in the connected world. Visit cisecurity.org to play your part. Okay, so let's dig a little deeper into government and regulation. I mean, you were saying, Lewis, that we don't want courts to decide this, but we maybe don't want, I mean, I tried reading through the U S thing, uh, you know, that came out of the white house and all I could think of was it's way too early for this. This is no fun. This is going to take away a lot of fun. There are real threats. Yeah. But um, do we want, I mean, do, do we need bureaucracy right away on this thing? Um, and I'm kind of coming from the, you know, from the libertarian spirit, that actually does animate Silicon Valley and most of the open source world, I would say, you know, I mean, it's a lot of individuals scratching their own itch, having fun, doing cool things. Do you want to throw sand in those, in those tires? So, I, a little bit. I, a little I mean, bit. It, this is a super, <laughs> yeah. a super complicated and fraught topic. I think part of this is um, generational, right? I mean, there was a, uh, there's a, if you tell a computer science grad coming out of who like graduated from a comp sci degree in 2023, that, that when I graduated, the most pressing ethical issue in software was Bill Gates. Yeah. Like yeah. they, like that was true. Like that was a genuine, like, Oh yeah, no, he was, Bill he Gates's was. control of the industry. Like it still makes me steaming mad when people are like, Oh, Bill Gates, you know, patron of the arts and like, dude stole all that money, period. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's great that now this like guy who committed monopolistic violations to make all that money is now giving 
some of it back to the world that he stole it from. Terrific. Great. Thanks, Lex Luthor. But like, um, so that was like a real, I think still is uh, a real ethical issue. But like, that is not the leading ethical issue in software anymore. Right. And, and, and to try to tell that with a straight face to somebody who's like, you know, surveillance cameras are my, we can now legitimately ask the question, are my surveillance cameras racist? <laughs> because like the technology can literally embed racism uh, in a like very real, as you were saying earlier, pattern matching kind of way. And so to tell this new generation of open source developers that the most important ethical issue that you can tackle is like Microsoft's power in the industry. They're like, no, 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 no. That's like 10th on my list of ethical issues with software. So I think the libertarian, the libertarian vision is real. The concerns are real. They are just not top of mind to say that that's the dominant vision in open source, I think is no longer at least that's a very complicated it's, it's, place to be right now because so many yeah, people in open source do not resonate with our old libertarian issues. It just absolutely. doesn't. It doesn't rank for them, and it probably shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, I go deeper than that as well. Uh, so I, I, I watch, we, we watch the web um, being a wild west for uh, for twenty years, and then finally it comes time for the European Union and for California. Uh, to to let do some legislation about it. So the European Union makes GDPR. GDPR is a a steaming mess that really benefits nobody because the way the web works is now so much a part of people's economic uh, lives that you can't fundamentally disrupt it uh, in the way that you would have done if you had started legislating much sooner and let the legislation evolve in the places where it turned out to not be quite right. And so I'm really pleased to see uh, both the US and Europe legislating around AI. I, I'm actually quite pleased at the Cyber Resilience Act that that, that is happening, that they, they're legislating for uh, the protection of users of, of devices because, you know, they're not going to get it right now. They are legislating early in the life cycle, but that will mean that there is a legislative framework that we can tell them is wrong rather than just letting everybody go invent new ways of stealing money from the general public. And then in 15 years, someone come along and weakly say, oh, we really ought to be legislating some of this. So, I, you know, I'm quite pleased to see it here. Having said that, I'm not very pleased about the CRA and, and, and the way that it actually looks. But it, we are going to get details. You know, we're going to get legislation. The details there is, are painful. There's no point. Yep. Yeah, I know. I mean, look, as an American, I mean, you know, Doc, to your point about libertarianism and like, and I think one of the like good questions that our techno libertarianism raises is, are are these folks like competent to be legislating this? Right. And I, the cookie pop ups drive me bonkers because, as Simon says, the like privacy legislation. Good getting permission for every cookie on the internet like what even that was obviously a terrible idea 15 years ago and the fact that it's still going on is like just yeah you know it's a triumph of like it's a triumph of 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 where it's tokenism it's 
It's because yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the legislation was being negotiated at a point when it was not possible to do the real thing that needed doing, which was to regulate surveillance capitalism. And instead what happened was it, it all got reduced down to an argument over cook, damned cookies. And, and uh, so the, the, token is, the, the token thing that everybody could agree did the least harm to everybody's business models was, to, was cookie pop-ups. Uh, and it's it's not there because it does anybody any good. It's there because it's the 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 avatar for doing the least harm to everybody else who wants to carry on uh, surveilling the general public and stealing their identity and information in order to make money, which unfortunately right. no one yeah, thought yeah, they yeah. could legislate about. So, yeah, I mean, it is like uh, that, that we're still having that discussion about cookies. Seems <laughs> later well, is not. I mean, look, I'm a I'm a democratic optimist i would say right like small d democracy optimist but boy yeah every time i see a cookie pop up i i cringe at the thought of and now they're going to figure out large language models but the thing is somebody's gonna yeah no it's not going to work very well but but we but the alternative of i mean as you say starting earlier i think simon is not ideal but i think this it's just too central to the economy, right? We we can't pretend there's some amazing, uh, one of my favorite books about the law is called The Accidental Republic. And it's about how the U.S. came to regulate railroads because railroads went from this thing that the law analogized to horse-driven carriages. And so there was very little liability on them because how much damage could a horse-driven carriage really do? To, at, at its peak, all the major railroad systems had their own hospital systems throughout the U.S. because they maimed and killed so many people every year, like Civil War levels of carnage from railroad accidents. And like at that, and at some point, the, the U.S. government was like, "Oh, maybe we need to." I mean, they sort of invented modern regulation in order to regulate the railways, and it's because they were so central and so huge and so powerful. And tech is the same way, right? Software tech is the same way. The question is not, are we going to be regulated? The question is, how are we going to be regulated? And do we engage with that in a healthy way so or the least bad way? So I see two, two, two problems here. One is um, every new law has, a, in, in a way, especially around tech, kind of protects yesterday from last Thursday. Uh, and I think what the GDPR did is it protected 2015 from 2012 and became enforceable in 2018, after which uh, enforcement couldn't possibly keep up with the massive business that developed in in GDPR compliance. Look up GDPR compliance. You'll get hundreds of millions of results. And all of them, all of them are for how to obey the reg- uh, how to obey the letter and screw the spirit of the GDPR, which is what gives us all the cookie pop-up, pop-ups. But on the the other problem is that, as as a former FCC chairman said to a small group of us once, I may have mentioned this on a show before, uh, about net neutrality. This is many years ago, actually, and it was several um, FCC chairmen ago. But he said, I, I've spoken to every member of Congress at one point or another, and I can tell you almost to a person there are two things they don't understand. One is technology and the other is economics. Go for it. Go for it. You know, so I think it's better now because I think more people are actually using technology, more people are coming out of technology. But 
we're also at the end of what Jeff Jarvis calls, and we talked about it earlier, the Gutenberg parenthesis, where all of our framing was in the print world, like the railroad world you just mentioned is, was framed in the horse world. And, um, you know, and, you know, McLuhan said every, every technology um, changes us utterly. It extends us and then it changes us. I mean, when, I mean, we, we associate planes, Native Americans with horses, well, those came from the Spanish and that changed their cultures utterly, you know, to a horse culture. That was a way they were extended and changed. We, we are in the middle of that right now. And, you know, one of the things that bothers me, and I want to get back to sort of the, it's not the liberty. I mean, when I say a libertarian, I'm talking about where, you know, all the, so many ideas come from one person scratching their itch. You know, that person in Nebraska, that's thanklessly working on a thing, right? And you don't want to stifle that. And it's it's that it's that that spirit of of originating something that actually works is yeah. is the thing we don't want to crush, and that's what got missed with with the GDPR. the The GDPR actually thinks of us as data subjects and not as human beings. They say everybody's a natural person, but we're just Ooh. data subjects, and other only other parties can be controllers or processors, and of their own data. And so we're sort of relegated to mere users, which is a a conventional term used only by the computer industry and by drugs. And so, and I'm kind of going afield here, but if we're staying inside the government uh, involvement part of this, um, they invite stakeholders to come. You and I are not the stakeholders that get, they get invited, right? It's, it's the captains of industry. I, Bill Gates I, I, today. I think, I think a change in the open space right now is that Simon and I actually yeah. are as, as part of a large you, group. You're doing it. You're doing the work. So we're, we are that. actually now stakeholders. You guys gang up on invite. me. Here. So I'm going, you know, I'm in Brussels next week. I've got an invite to go see some people from the commission. The, the, the truth about the, the current legislation at the European commission is it is actually being written and reviewed by people who understand it. So the, the, the people who wrote the product liability directive change, which is going to extend product liability to software, the people who wrote that know what they're talking about. They are actually subject experts in software uh, and in software law. And the people who've reviewed it in Parliament are actually people who have worked in the, in the technology industry. So, for example, there's an MEP in, the Czech, in Czechia, in the Czech Republic, uh, who used to be a uh, an engineering manager at Red Hat before going into politics. And he's one of the people who's reviewing the PLD. So th the old situation from 20 years ago, where there was nobody in Washington or Brussels or London who understood what the legislation did, it's not like that anymore. The people who are writing this stuff in, in uh, Brussels, they know what they're talking about. Their work is being reviewed by people that, that know what they're talking about. And that last problem is now slowly getting fixed. They are beginning to invite Lewis and me and, uh, you know, folk from the Linux Foundation and people from, uh, uh, from Debian and people from Apache are now beginning to get invited to go and advise on things. So I, I yeah. think that I'm very worried about the AI regulation because I don't think anybody understands that stuff. And so there is nobody with the knowledge to regulate it at the moment, uh, it, including you, including me. And I don't, can't speak for you, Lewis. Maybe you know how to legislate it. I have no clue how to write regulations about AI, apart from being very worried about people taking the works of others and deriving value from it without compensating them. And 
people applying the derived knowledge in the models to do bad things. Those are the two things that worry me. How I legislated, I don't know. So I think we're kind of partly fixed there, Doc. I think that the people, you know, we're, we're talking with people who know what they're talking about. And uh, cybersecurity is mature enough for the legislation to be meaningful. It has defects deep in the details. And that's why we're engaging is we're, we're trying to help them fix the defects. Um, and yep. so, so Lewis, you know, you're representing a whole load of developers plausibly at Tidelift. Is that why Tidelift has got you intervening in these these activities? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, we are very concerned with the impact on. I mean, we think overall. I mean, I, my, younger me can't believe I'm so like capitalist red and tooth and claw here, but like we think at the end of the day that injecting some more money into the system is a net good thing. And one of our concerns about the Cyber Resilience Act is that it tends to want a sort of a, a very binary, either you are a pure as the driven snow, lovely volunteer scratching doc, as you say, scratching our itches, or you're like a tool of American capitalism and you should be regulated to like within an inch of your life. And so part of our position has been to try to like say, actually, there are a lot of people who are like doing small bits. They're consulting here and there. They're using Tidelift. They're using Open Collective and that we should have that we should be careful not to accidentally stomp all over those folks. Right. And we are similarly we're submitting next week to the White House. Uh, they have a cybersecurity request for information out that I know Open Collective is doing a response to. We are doing a response to, I think Linux Foundation is. I know Open Source Initiative through their Open Policy Alliance. By the way, Simon can't or shouldn't make this pitch here, but I'm going to. Open Source Initiative is doing great work right now, including around policy issues. This is a good time to become an individual member and support that organization because they're doing awesome stuff and you should support them. Uh, no longer a board member, no conflict of interest here. I'm just a guy. Um, you should go join. Uh, the um, uh, And uh, sorry, I got slightly distracted because my my team back home is asking, how did it go? And the answer is it went so awesome that I'm, you know, uh, still going. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, and, and so anyway, this request for information that we're going to publish soon and we're going to submit to the U.S. federal government talks about this question of how do we make sure that we don't crush the motivations of individual maintainers because they are in many ways they're not the high visibility. Like there's no conference. There should be a conference for individual maintainers. There's what we do something called upstream at Tidelift, uh, which is very cool. It's all online uh, and it focuses on these solo maintainers because they are the upstream of so much of our value. Um, but, you know, there's not a lot of focus on that, even though so much value is there. So part of our role is very much to go to Brussels, to go to DC and say, uh, Hey, we're trying to speak for these for these solo maintainers. That's certainly why I I mean, I definitely don't get engaged in policy discussions because they're fun, because they're sort of like nails on a chalkboard constantly, but they're really important. So we're getting close to the end of the show, as you just as your team just let you know, <laughs> they're a, a little off. We're, we're still at less than an hour, um, uh, but we have to take one last break and we'll have a question after that. 
All you want is to meet your security and compliance requirements. But your business technology keeps changing. Cyber threats emerge every day. More regulations apply to you now than ever before, and your IT resources remain limited. The Center for Internet Security can help. At CIS, we work to create a safer world for people, businesses, and governments through collaboration and innovation. Using a community-driven consensus process, we work with IT professionals and volunteers around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources save you time, money, and effort wherever you are on your cybersecurity journey. We also work with U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations to share information with one another so they're stronger together. Join us today in creating confidence in the connected world. Visit cisecurity.org to play your part. Right now, I would say that pretty much most of the world is obeying the GDPR one way or another, and to a lesser degree, the CCPA and a number of other things, the CRA and other things will come along. And um, Europe, Europe has been taking the lead on this. What about China? Um, you know, I, I, is this going to split the Internet apart? More and more regulation coming down from the West, as uh, some like to say. Um, what, what think you on th- that? I think perhaps, especially in AI, it might. For a lot of cultural reasons, that split has already happened between China and the rest of the world for sort of non-legal, I mean, political, maybe, great firewall. Different patterns. Uh, yeah. yeah, but also different patterns of adoption, different pattern. I mean, you know, China has all these super apps that are just, <clears throat> despite <clears throat> Mr. Musk's best efforts, are, are not going to become a thing in the West for various sort of historical adoption reasons, right? So that split was already, I think, on a lot of issues was already happening. The On AI, that's going to be a more interesting question, right? I think one of the really fascinating questions about regulation of AI right now is whether or not sharing models and things like that, is that going to be something more like MP3s where we have a, le- we have a lot of legal options, but we don't, uh, we haven't, for example, mandated DRM as a legal matter. Uh, we haven't mandated DRM yet. We don't, as a digital uh, rights management. Yeah. Digital rights management. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of issues that we used to care a lot about and now, uh, the the importance of those has changed. Uh, but, you know, but for MP3s, the government could be a lot more aggressive than it is. And instead, it's sort of like eh, a certain low level of MP3s is fine uh, for uh, what's called CSAM, which is um, a the government acronym for essentially child pornography. Zero tolerance. A government will come and swoop down and arrest you in your home pretty much across the Western world. And we don't know whether AI regulation is going to look more like MP3s or it's going to look more like CSAM. We don't know. I mean, there's talk in this White House executive order of an international treaty treating it almost like nukes or biological weapons. Is that going to happen? Is China going to get on board? Like, that's where I think for the privacy stuff, you already sort of have two internets. For AI, we don't know what that looks like, right? And we don't know, you know, Doc, I think one of the things that where our intuitions as open source folks can lead us a little bit astray with AI is 
that the amount of hardware needed makes this sort of a powerful company's game right now. Mm. Open isn't involved in the same way. There's a lot of open. I mean, Facebook calls their stuff open. It's not, not in the sense that any of us would recognize it. Um, but they can sort of get away with that because they have a lot of hardware and so they can train good stuff. And so some of those intuitions that we have, you know, maybe this is like in the good old days when open source had to be bootstrapped by Solaris and AIX and we'll get our Linux kernel and it'll become cheap and easy to do AI or maybe it won't. We don't know yet. To Simon's point, it feels very early. So writing good regulation now is going to be hard. Well, this is this has been a fast hour, and and we, we we you're one of the cases where we say we have to have you back, and then we did have you back. Here we are, um, and we'll have to. You don't check have to wait again. as long next time. I'm we won't really, we won't wait as long. Um, uh, sign, but, you know so, what? Sign doc. Sign me up for this era in tech. Uh, <laughs> we'll do like a uh, historical. We'll do player piano. Oh, we'll do a series on player pianos. We'll do a series on trains. Th- th- that's and, a really interesting uh, one to me. That and it, w- it wasn't just player pianos. It was Victor Herbert hearing his songs being played in a bar that resulted in composers getting compensated and the performers never keeping up with it, which is why the RIAA and not something else is involved in, in advocating performers, why radio is different copyright regime than, than podcasts do why podcasts don't, there's no podcast for music that that's like really good, high quality music because you have to clear rights for everything. It's, I mean, all that stuff is really weird and interesting. I'd love to go into that at some point. So, um, so, so quickly, because we really are, I think, out of time now, because <laughs> um, uh, we always ask this, if, and if it's changed for you, um, what are your favorite text editor and, and scripting language? I mean, my favorite? <laughs> uh, I mean, let's be honest, my IDE is Word. Like that's sad, but that that is my well, that is that is you're my a lawyer, idea. and so you can mark we're, this. Data. Yeah, so, we're going to yeah. be sending the LibreOffice people around, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> and though, and 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 yeah, and my my scripting language is Markdown, and anything that will manipulate right. Markdown these days, right? That's uh, um, though. Shout out to my Mozilla folks. You know, JavaScript will always be in my heart. Yeah, it's <laughs> too many bases to cover. So thanks, Lewis. It's been great having you on the show. And we will have you back to talk about eras next time. Remind us of that. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Been, been a lot of fun. Thank you both. Indeed. So, Simon, both of us were so eager to cover topics that we <laughs> did we uh, were texting each other in the background here. like I. <laughs> but you guys are colleagues, really, on, on this. I mean, when we talk about stakeholders, yeah. you... You are the guys holding the stakes, as it were. Yeah, I, I, we, I'm we more try, peripheral try, to it than Simon has been, but mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, we're, we're trying to hard to get those stakes into the right vampires as well. Um, <laughs> so, that's what I was thinking. You know, it's the responsibility of the stakeholders to get the stake into the right vampire. Uh, so <laughs> there is a there, yeah, there's certainly a sense to, to, in which we're colleagues, uh, and Lewis, um, you know, helps uh, with OSI activities around licensing, which is still. Um, you know, we it used to be so central to everything that we talked about in in, in open source, and it still is. It's still fundamental. It's and the a reason forever it seems, topic. The yeah. reason it seems so un- unremarkable is because I, I think we've we've you know perished the thought largely got it right. 
and people do feel that they have the confidence to proceed with other matters than how to pick a license these days. Uh, I mean, that's not universally true. There's still a whole load of activity in that mm-hmm. area. So, so yeah, we're 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 kind of working on those things. I think that that Tidelift was a, a fascinating and timely activity, and I'm fascinated to hear how it's going and 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 what's going on there. Uh, the fact that Tidelift is a substantial enough part of our ecosystem in open source to get invited for Lewis to get invited to the White House to give advice on uh, uh, on open source software topics, I think, is an, an indication that we've moved from where we were the the, the rebels on the frontier, and mm. uh, we're now uh, we're, we're past the town planning stage, and and we're now a community of people who are the community that is that is running all the things the world is using you know it's it's the people that you and i and lewis know that are running the messaging services that are running the the compute services that are implementing the government engagement services so yeah in many ways we're kind of colleagues we're also we're also you know gamekeeper and 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 poacher to a certain degree as well Uh, (laughs) that's great i like that i like that metaphor (laughs) <laughs> so what did you think doc i mean so, so uh, yeah. do you feel that we're we're betraying the libertarian roots of, of oh no not at all uh, not at all those, those um those roots are never going to end it's just basically individuals being able to you know have you know the freedom and liberty to contribute in one way or another and uh there's always a it's not a tug of war it's just a a tug between interests and and needs and um, governance is an important thing, whatever that is. And, you know, and you guys are on top of it and we're really way late at this point. So give us your plugs, uh, Simon, if you have yeah, one. So, so plugs, uh, if you are, uh, anywhere within reach of, uh, the North end of Italy. So you're in, uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, uh, or adjacent States. There is a fantastic conference called SFSCon happening on November the 10th where I will be the opening keynote speaker. And there are, is a tremendous lineup of very smart people because, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm just there to compare, really. All the smart people come after me. Come along to that conference. It's, uh, <laughs> there's no charge for admission. It is in one of the most beautiful places in Europe, in Bolzano. And you can sign up for it by going to sfscon.it and uh, sign up and, and register and get a ticket. And I will see you there. Um, possibly if you're around in the evening, we can drink some wine together and find out what you think about open source and free software. SFSCon.it. Very good. Um, and I have to tell people, uh, surprise, I actually know the guest next week. <laughs> 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 Sorry. The, the back channel's not going to catch me on that, that one. It's Philip Griffiths. Uh, he's with OpenZiti, Z-I-T-I dot I-O, OpenZiti. So that is next week, and we will see you then. Hey, we should talk Linux. It's the operating system that runs the internet, but your game consoles, cell phones, and maybe even the machine on your desk. You already knew all that. What you may not know is that TwitNow has a show dedicated to it, the Untitled Linux Show. Whether you're a Linux pro, a burgeoning sysadmin, or just curious what the big deal is, you should join us on the Club Twit Discord every Saturday afternoon for news, analysis, and tips to sharpen your Linux skills. And then make sure you subscribe to the Club Twit exclusive Untitled Linux Show. Wait, you're not a Club Twit member yet? 
we'll go to twit.tv slash club twit and sign up. Hope to see you there.